You know, we are halfway through our journey uh, in the Gospel of Mark. It took us about 27 sermons to get there. And so rather than try to, to move forward with some really, really uh, creative introduction, I want to take a moment to actually pause, just pause as we step into the next part of the story, and take a look at two really important principles that are really going to drive the rest of our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Two principles that I want us to have in mind to read the story, okay? So let's just jump right in before we take a look at this next part of the story. So two principles. We're going to start with the first. This first principle that we need to have on our radar as we move forward in the rest of this journey in the Gospel of Mark is that context comes before content. So context before content. This is really important for us. Now, take a look at how I'm trying to imagine this. So there's a passage of Scripture every week. And by considering the context, we're looking at what comes before and what, what, what's coming after that passage. We want to set it within a particular context. I want to say it this way. We want to understand the context of a passage where it sits in the story, and then after we understand where it sits in the story, then we understand the actual content of the story. So let's put this in a real-life example. Let me give you a small story. We'll start with the, quote, passage of of this story, uh, just a passage in the middle of the story. She looked lovingly into her toddler's eyes. Isn't that a wonderful passage? I mean, I wrote it myself, really. It's really a wonderful passage. Can you imagine all the things that we could pull out of that passage? All the application we could make? What a wonderful next step we could walk away with, with this passage of the story. Now, without context, there's a lot of good here. Let me put the rest of the story around it. Here's what comes before. He had cried most of the morning, but now he was in his high chair enjoying his milk. She looked lovingly into her toddler's eyes. After he finished, she put him down on the floor. He then turned, smiling, and ran into the bathroom, hoping, hoping to unroll all the toilet paper. Ah! <laughs> oh. Now, this was a random story. I have no experience with this with our, and in my life with our one-year-old. I, I, this, again, just very random. Um, but do you see now, maybe this looking lovingly in the toddler's eyes takes on new meaning right? This is a defiant child on both ends of the passage, but in this special moment, she was able to grab this this memory where she looked lovingly into his eyes. See, the context makes a difference on how you'll read that passage, and that's what we want to do with the Gospel of Mark. Every every week, we want to look at a particular passage, but then consider where were we and where are we going so that we can situate that passage inside the context of the story. Then the content's going to come alive. So that's a principle I really want us to grab because I want you to understand why we're doing what we do as we walk through the Gospel of Mark. The second principle is that we want to see the theme. See the theme. I mean, Take a look at how this might work out. The themes produced early in Mark's gospel grow more prominent as the story develops, culminating at the end. And so, for example, at the beginning of the gospel, Mark, we see that conflict and humility are really important. But that's going to, if we take those themes and run them to the end, when we get to the cross and resurrection, you will see that those two themes are really, really important. And they actually need to sit primary as we understand who Jesus is. 
And that really has application for our everyday life. So I want us to understand that every week I'm trying to understand the context and understand the theme. I really want us to make sure that we're grabbing these themes that are repetitive, okay? Because that helps us understand what's going on with Jesus and the kingdom of God. And that all has something to do about your life today when you leave this room and you go and try to be Jesus in this world. So that's why all this matters. But this, these are two principles that, that are really going to stand for us as we move forward in the story. With all that said, we now jump into our passage this morning. And as you can expect, after we read this passage, we want to consider context, and we want to take a look at some themes, okay? All right, so let's jump in. We're in Mark chapter 9. We're picking up with this verse 14. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, quite an interesting story we, we jump into here in the Gospel of Mark. Verse 14, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them. And the teachers of the law are arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. What, what are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked my disciples to drive out the spirit, your disciples to drive out the spirit. But they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long should I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the Spirit, when the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground. He rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if, you can do nothing, if, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Hmm. It's a powerful story. So let's, put, let's consider some context, uh, where this story sits. So what is, where we've just been in the gospel is on the Mount of Transfiguration. We've been on a mountain with Jesus. His clothes became dazzling white. Shining like the sun, Moses and Elijah were with him. This was a profound moment. It was a, it was a, it was a literally a mountaintop moment. And there, the disciples even heard God the Father say this. So take a look. Mark 9, this is what they heard God the Father say. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So they're seeing Jesus dazzling white. They're hearing the voice of God. 
They're having a mountaintop experience. I mean, this is about as good as it gets, at least up to this point. So much so that Peter wanted to put up tents so they could stay there in that mountaintop moment. But they had to come down off the mountain. And when they come down off the mountain, you know what they experience? They experience immediate conflict. Huh. They went from a mountaintop experience, they came back down to the valley, and they hit conflict. They came right into contact with evil. Right, right, from, right from the get-go. Now that strikes me. Because as I'm putting this story in the context of the Gospel of Mark, that's a pattern. Going from mountaintop moment to immediate conflict. A, a conflict particularly with evil. See, that's a pattern that we see all the way back at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. See, this, we've seen this before. We've seen this before. It's right when we started 27 sermons ago, we saw this. Take a look, Mark chapter 1. I want to start with verse 9. We'll go right up through the middle of verse 13. Here's what we read. Here again, watch for the pattern. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Again, at the beginning of this gospel, he records the start of the ministry of Jesus, his public ministry, and we start with a mountaintop moment, like you got God talking, God the Father talking from the cloud, and then Jesus goes right into a conflict with Satan. And so that pattern is repeating right here in chapter 9 of Mark. Now that theme, this conflict theme, is going to go all the way to the end of the gospel. It's going to go all the way to the cross. And part of what happens at the cross is not just that your sins are forgiven. It's that Jesus comes into conflict with evil and he destroys the works of the devil. Now, Jesus gave like hints of this in other places. Now, Mark doesn't always record these places. So take a look at what Jesus said in John 12. This is why while Jesus was still on earth. Just take a look at how he foreshadows the conflict. The time for judging the world, this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. John chapter 12, verse 31. Jesus knew that what was going on, part of what was going on while he was on earth, was that a judgment of the kingdom of the devil was in play. Interesting. Interesting. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. This is what the Hebrew writer says, chapter 2, verse 14. Because children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of of the devil who had the power of death. And then take a look at 1 John 3, verse 8. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who's been sinning from the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, Can we go back to the slide right before all these scriptures where uh, we say something about Mark and the beginning of the gospel? Let me tie all this together. Early in the gospel, his gospel account, Mark wants the reader to understand that Jesus is in conflict with Satan. The kingdom of God is at war with the kingdom of the devil. We see that right at the beginning, that theme runs all the way to the end. 
so that when Christian writers are writing these letters from Hebrews all the way to 1 John, part of the way they describe what happened with Jesus is that he actually won the conflict on the cross. So you have these bookends where we know a conflict starting, that the kingdom of God is going to come into conflict with the kingdom of the devil. And then what we see is at the end of all of this, as people reflect back on what has happened, they describe this battle and Jesus winning it. Okay? That's, that's the bookends. Mark chapter 9 sits in the middle of all that. And what we see happening in the middle there is that this conflict, which we've seen growing is now intensifying. It's now intensifying. Let me share with you the way one scholar describes what is beginning to happen in the story in this right here in Mark chapter 9. Here's how one scholar describes it. We'll go now to that quote after all those scriptures. A corner has been turned. Everything seems more demanding. In the first half of the Gospel of Mark, many people come to Jesus with what appears comparatively easy faith. They touch him, and they are healed. It seems as simple as that. But for this man, in this situation, faith is hard. Did you notice in this story that this isn't a microwave miracle? Like, this isn't just like like Jesus says it, it's done. This dad comes to the disciples. These are disciples who already went out proclaiming the kingdom Chapters before we ever got to chapter 9, this was months before we ever get to the story, the disciples had gone out and they actually were casting out demons. So what happens in this moment when they can't? I think this describes not only the fact that things are intensifying, but there are some, and I don't understand all this, the New Testament doesn't give us a clear picture, but there are levels of evil. There must be some level of of demonic power that now has has gone up a level. And the disciples in this moment, they cannot, as a group, they can't cast out this demon. This is no microwave miracle. Things have gotten a lot harder. It's going to take Jesus himself in this moment. And so I want us to understand that things will continue to get harder. This, like, walk with Jesus is not an afternoon stroll. This is where we see things getting hard. This is where things intensify. And you can imagine then, when we finally get to the cross, why that is such an important part of the story. Because that's where the intensity goes to its highest level. And so here in Mark 9, we see that intensity. And we see struggles we haven't seen before. And so let's pivot the attention then, in the middle of all this struggle, to the dad. To the dad. And all the struggles this dad brings with him. And I see like three big ones. I see three big struggles here. I see a dad who is carrying with him years of frustration. Years of frustration. How long has his child been dealing with the possession? Since childhood. Like, do you relate to frustration? Like, is that something you can relate to? Well, this, can you relate to having a child who has been a frustration for years? Or just internally been in angst, this is a dad who's experiencing that. And then you have failure. I think we can all relate to some failure. And it's not just the fact that the disciples have failed. Can you imagine bringing bringing your child, maybe in your last ditch hope, to a group of people that you think have power, and you've heard stories about their power, and then they come and that you bring that child, and they can't do anything. 
and Jesus isn't around. Can you imagine what he was feeling the moment they realized they couldn't do this? The failure. And I imagine the dad may have felt like a failure himself. Like if we stepped into that story in details we don't have, but just imagined, I just wonder. The dad was second-guessing all kinds of things. Maybe if he would have went to see Jesus when he was in a different part of the region months before. You know, maybe he delayed and didn't go to Jesus because he said, ah, he can't do anything. And maybe he's second-guessing because he could have had access to Jesus himself. Maybe he could have come just a little bit earlier. And he missed his opportunity. I mean, in that moment when Jesus and the three disciples are up on the mountain, well, there's no hope. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, can't do anything. There's a lot of failure in this story. And then you even just have the presence of evil. You ever been around things that just are dark? And you just know it, you can feel it? Well, that's a struggle. That's a struggle when you're around dark things. Evil things. So I want us to understand that this, this dad brings a lot of struggles into the story. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this. Isn't that interesting? The Bible doesn't shy away from this. I want us to understand something here as we take our next step to understanding the content of the story. This is what I want us to see. Let's take this next slide. When the dad meets Jesus, did you notice? He doesn't perk up and give an amazing testimony of radical faith. Instead, he confesses his doubt. I think that people particularly that have been in church for a long time, I think that we, we have this idea that we're expected to do the, the former. That anytime we come into the church building or we get into, you know, get into a conversation with someone that's real spiritual, that we have to like perk up, everything has to be okay, and we have to have some amazing testimony of faith because like we're, we're among Christians or we're in a church building. And so like we dare never describe doubts. Recently I was at a funeral and I heard the pastor say, and it was a difficult funeral, he said, he said in this funeral, we cannot question God. And then he just bowled on through to having some nice, neat answer to what was going on with this death. And I thought, I don't know what Bible he's reading. Because in the Bible I read, I see stories of struggle. And I see a dad in this moment who doesn't perk up and give some amazing testimony of faith. I see a dad who's confessing doubt. And so he even says to Jesus, if you can help. And Jesus says, if I can help. And then the dad says this. Take a look. Let's, let's just put that back in front of our eyes. The boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. You resonate with that? I sure do. I sure do. And I think it teaches us something. Now I'm going to put up something a little bit radical here. A little bit radical, because most of us grow up in church for a long time who think we have to act a certain way. This is not how we typically grow up in church. Here it is. The kingdom of God is not opposed to doubt. It's opposed to rebellion and pride. Mm. So many people carry this idea that they can never doubt God, and you better never question him. Uh, I don't see that. I don't see that in the Gospel of Mark. I don't see it in other places in the Bible. Actually, what I see is that throughout the history of God's people, they are bringing to him doubts and struggles. Doubts and struggles. Doubts and struggles. You know, 
we describe King David. We describe him as a man after God's own heart. I mean, God picked King David as, as the forerunner who will, would lead the way to the Messiah. I mean, if anybody was going to be God's right-hand person as a human, it was King David. And yet, he penned some of the most worrisome psalms, songs that we have in the Bible. I just want to pick up one of them. I want you to see the doubt. God's people are always carrying doubt. Kingdom of God is not opposed to the doubt. It's opposed to the rebellion and pride. Take a look at Psalm 13. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's only six verses. Take a look. Maybe you resonate with this a little bit. King David writes this. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. For he has been good to me. Hmm. The verse 5 and 6 in Psalm 13 is the key to having doubt in the kingdom of God. God can handle your doubts. He can handle your questions. He can hang, handle your anger. He can handle your inappropriate language to him in prayer. But it's the in prayer that makes all the difference. It's taking those doubts, it's taking those questions, just taking it back to God. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to feel it. But you take your doubts back to him, and God can handle those. What God will not handle is you becoming the kind of person that rebels and runs away from his authority and his love. He'll give you what you want if you run from him. He'll let you go that way. And he'll let your heart become darker and darker along the way. You see, what God wants is to, for you to take your doubts and bring them into the kingdom. This father gives us a wonderful example. Did you notice Jesus didn't turn him away? Did you notice that Jesus kept moving towards him as, the father, as the, that father moved towards him? Jesus does not turn people away because of their doubts. You know who he's turning away. He turns away the people that think they have it all figured out. That have night, these night neat boxes and then push everyone else away. Those that are full of pride and arrogance. Those are the people that Jesus is pushing away. Those are the people that, that are not in the kingdom of God. But people like this dad who carry all those struggles and then bring them to Jesus without all the answers, those are the people God is inviting. And he'll bring them along. And I don't think this dad had it all figured out, nor did his faith become perfect after this moment. I think he went home, and he and his son had to figure out how to live together without the sickness, without the demon possession. I think there's a whole other story that could be written on their family post this miracle, where he continued to work out this faith. I'd be interested, after Jesus rose from the dead and the gospel went out throughout Judea, and beyond Jerusalem, Judea, and into the farmost corners of the earth, I wonder if this dad and the son became followers of the way of Jesus. I, just, I don't think he had, he had a perfect faith in the aftermath. But I think he went a little bit farther down the road to believing in this Jesus. I think God was answering his prayer. Help me in my unbelief. 
So I think all of this has some ready-made application for us. Like I think it's it's just like on like it's it's like teed up for us to make some application. And I think right off the bat, I think we can acknowledge we all have some struggles. Take a look. Let's just like go back into his struggles, and I think maybe you can relate to them. Maybe maybe you are facing because I think we still struggle with frustrations. I think we struggle with failures and disappointments. And I think we struggle with the presence of evil. I think there's still darkness in our world. Now, right there, that list right there, that is still pretty generic, right? Like, there's a lot of frustrations we could list. There's a lot of failures and disappointments. And there's a lot that we could say about the presence of evil. But let me just now move us to, some, to a really big list of some things that might really have application right where you live. Maybe these are real struggles for you, and maybe we should own them. Chronic pain. I know some of you deal with chronic pain. Like, you hurt when you wake up. And sometimes you're mad, and you want to know why God doesn't take it away. Why me? Like, when you get hit with a migraine for two days, why, God? Why? And you've been dealing with it for years? That could be a real question back to God. But asking God is exactly who you need to be asking. Taking it to him. Terminal illness. The loss of a loved one. Particularly the untimely loss of a loved one. Job loss. Right? Low income. Maybe you have a job, but you don't got enough of a job to pay the bills. And you're actually way behind. And you know what happens when people with low-paying jobs get behind? It's very hard to get back up to middle. Very hard. How are they supposed to do it? It's a very difficult place to be. And a lot of people in those positions want to know, why, God? Why? Uh, maybe failed relationships. Maybe you, maybe you are living in the aftermath of a divorce. Maybe your adult child doesn't like you and you don't like them and you've had a broken relationship there for years. I don't know. I'm just, think about where all these broken relationships are and I imagine you got some of them. And I imagine you wonder, particularly maybe if your spouse left you, you're wondering, why, God? I just want, like, bring the weight of that. That's a struggle. Some other ones are abuse. I mean, this has a range here. I imagine in a group this size, some, someone in this room was abused. Maybe physically, emotionally, sexually, as a child. And you're still carrying those wounds with you. Right here, like as you sit in this room. And you're wondering, why, God, why'd you give me that dad? Why'd you give me that uncle? Why'd you give me that aunt? Why'd you give me that cousin? Why'd you give me that mom? You got a lot of those questions, and you've not resolved all that. And then maybe addictions. Addictions. We got an opioid crisis. You hear about it a lot in the news, and particularly in a poorer county. I imagine every one of us knows someone that is dealing with opioid addiction. Or know someone that either lost their life, lost their job, lost their family, or they're in jail because of opioids. This is, I mean, this is, that's a real struggle. Now, I could put up on that slide and just keep it there about frustrations or failure, disappointments. When you sitting there are thinking about a particular person in your life that is dealing right now with the addiction to opioids. Mm. And I'm saying that Jesus has oversight of all that. Or maybe, maybe something, if we just continue down the list, mental illness, right? That's something the church should be talking about. That's a category we give it. The Bible doesn't actually use the words mental illness. But those same struggles sit there. 
What about overdoses? I know I got in my own family a cousin, first cousin, died of a heroin overdose. Like this touches us. And we have questions like, why God? Depression. Talk about something we don't like to talk about. Depression. This is like a real thing. And when you are facing and sitting in depression, you know who you don't like to talk to? Usually God. You don't want to deal with God. Probably don't even want to deal with church. You definitely don't want to deal with his people. It's a real struggle. Food insecurity, hunger. Now, I imagine a lot of us, we're not dealing with that, but we got a lot of people in our community that do. Now, I know for me, who has plenty of food, I, could never ha- I, I am not struggling to know what to eat. I have a hard time understanding why kids in our community don't have anything to eat. But you know what a second grader usually can't do? They can't go out to food line and buy food for themselves. They're sitting under the weight and the difficult life they live because of their parents or maybe a relative. And then that might be related to the criminal justice system. That might be tied in with all kinds of things that we really aren't even aware of. These are all struggles that really do damage to people's faith. Or maybe domestic violence. Maybe you are struggling with how you handle life in your home. Either the abuser or the abused. We rarely talk about the abuser side. Who would ever talk about that? But listen, listen. You may be struggling with the, abuse, the abusing side of that equation. Because when you get angry, you haven't yet figured out how to handle that. And so I'm just saying domestic abuse is a real deal. You know why a lot of people who deal with domestic abuse don't come into a church? Because they carry so many doubts, so many struggles, and the church just says, here's your easy answer. They're not easy answers to this. Maybe harassment at work. Maybe emotional pain, right? You're carrying hurts. You've been yelled at just one too many times at home or at work. Or maybe regret. Maybe you got a past life that you don't like to think about. Maybe you hurt people. Maybe you violently hurt people. Maybe you said things years ago that you still haven't reconciled. Maybe you feel like a failure, because of things you did in your past. And you don't know how to, you don't know how to let go of those. And you, you carry with you not that there's a God or not a God. What you're carrying with you is so much regret that surely God would never forgive you. Because if God knew what I did, he wouldn't have anything to do with me. And I think what we see in this story and the application today is, oh, God would bring you right in. What God doesn't want is you coming to him saying, you have it figured out and you really are God. But he'll take you with all your doubts. He'll take you with all of your past violence or hurt, pain, questions. He'll bring, you just like bring it all to him. Like put all the chips in and give them time. And that usually takes years. This stuff doesn't happen in a day. I get so tired of hearing religious people talk as if one sermon, one memory verse can fix your life. It can't. Because we are people in relationships in a broken world. And we didn't get this way overnight, and we don't heal overnight. Okay? And so, I don't know, that list, I imagine imagine all of us can relate to that list. And so, you just bring it to Jesus and cry out, help me with my unbelief. He will. He'll come along with you, but if you think this is going to be a microwave situation... This isn't the Jesus for you, because he doesn't work like a microwave. 
Let me tell you why I'm kind of why I'm I'm long on this application, a little bit long today on this. I want I just I just decided it'd probably be better to write out what I'm trying to do. Here's the goal. Here's the goal in this application. I want to open space for us to acknowledge that we have doubts. But let's take them to God rather than stuffing them down and walking away from him. That's the goal. Because that's what I see happening in the story. So take all of it. Let's take all of it. All, I mean, this is a weighty topic. Let's take all of it and just bring it to a next step. Okay? Now this is really a first step in what can be a long journey of healing. But I think it's one we gotta, we got to at least get out there. This next step would be speak your doubts out loud. Speak your doubts out loud, especially to God. Okay? So like some of you really have grown up in a church context where you're not allowed to question God. You're not allowed to have doubts. You're not allowed to ever, ever feel like you're not worthy. You're like, you're not allowed to bring any of that. You're supposed to put on a smile, dress up a little bit, and act happy. Like that's the way you were trained. That's how church is supposed to be. Well, that's not, that is not what I see in the Bible. And so a first step is to tell someone, especially God, hey, God, I'm really mad at you for, for all the abuse I suffered in my childhood. I'm really mad. Why'd you let that happen? And that would be a good first step today. That's a good one. Then tomorrow, say it again. And let give space for God to get into your doubt. Can you imagine what would have happened if the dad would have just said, never mind, and walked away? But he stood there with Jesus. And this next step is to put you right next to Jesus and keep you there. And over time, those questions and those doubts, well, some answers, you're not gonna, some, sometimes you're not going to have an answer. But God has a way of healing you. There's some mystery here. I love figuring everything out. So the fact I'm telling you there's mystery, I need you to understand, I wish I could give you a formula. There's no formula for how God does some of this healing. But the first step is if you carry any doubts, get them out loud. Say them. Say them by yourself, say them with a friend, a trusted loved one, whatever that looks like. But literally get it off of your tongue so that your ear can hear it. That's a good first step. And just know, God will hold you. He's okay with your doubts. He will not handle well your pride and rebellion. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and again, we thank you for Mark and all the inspiration by the Holy Spirit to put it together just this way. We thank you for this story of this dad, of all the stories that could have been told, and there were hundreds. This one got put in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for this example, and Jesus, we bring you doubts. We bring you our frustrations. And yet, like King David said so many years ago, we trust you. We trust you. And we'll keep standing next to you as you help us through our doubts. And that's just really good news because I don't know anywhere else in the world where people are saying something like that. I don't know where there's another Jesus like you. So we just ask for your help. And we ask that you would continue to make us into the likeness of Jesus the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.